Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. If you'll recall, just to bring us up to speed, um, Moshe is hanging out on the mountain uh, of Sinai, called by another tradition, Chorev. We have two traditions for what the mountain of God is called, Chorev and Sinai. So Moshe is hanging out with God because remember the people freaked out. They couldn't hear God speak and not freak out. And so they freaked out and they said, you go deal with God and getting Torah. We're going to stay here. And so Moshe goes up to Sinai and he receives Torah. And that is what is happening now. And we see at verse 18 of chapter 31, that when uh, God finished speaking with Moshe on Sinai, God gave Moshe the two tablets of the pact, stone tablets, ktuvim be'etzpa Elohim, written by the finger of Elohim. Okay, so Moshe gets the two tablets. And now we're going to go, meanwhile, back at the camp, right? So meanwhile, back at the camp, vayar ha'am ki voshesh Moshe l'redet minahar. So the people see that Moshe delays in coming down from the mountain, so they start to panic. And so the, what is kahal? Kahal, kehila, like kehila Israel. Uh, this verb is about congregating. Um, and you can congregate for the good or you can congregate for the bad. And this, this uh, indirect object, al, this pointer word, al means on or against. So they gang up, essentially. You can congregate, in that, and when it's a good thing, you would use that word. But if think about whatever word you would use when it's not a good thing, right? They mobified. Um, so they gathered against Aharon, uh, and they said to him, Kum, get up. So this is a command form, right? Sivoy, the command form of, of the word to get up. Get up. Elohim, make for us. Now you have to, we have to pick a translation here, right? So Elohim, what's Elohim? Elohim can be God, capital E, Elohim. It can be Elohim, lowercase e, which just means God, lowercase g. And sometimes, occasionally in Tanakh, it also means a very, very influential or important leader, that's much rarer, but it does happen. So we have to figure out what's meant here. What do the people mean when they say, make us Elohim? Okay, well, we don't know. So let's look at what else they say. Who will go in front of us, before us. Because this guy, Moshe, that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's going on with him. That's all very literal, by the way. I know it sounds like a colloquialism, but that's quite literal. We want an Elohim that's going to go in front of us because this Haish, this guy, Moshe, that brought us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happening with him. Mehaya, what's happening low with him? Okay. So all we know is that they want Aaron to make for them something about Elohim. We're not sure exactly what that means because Moses, the guy that brought us up from Egypt, we don't know what, what's going on with him. Okay. 
And Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. How do slaves have a bunch of gold jewelry? Do we remember? Remember? Yeah, good, Judith. They borrowed it when they left Egypt, right? Borrowed in air quotes. Borrowed in air quotes, exactly. So they borrowed a bunch of stuff from the Egyptians on their way out. And God disposed the Egyptians' hearts favorably towards the Israelites. Yeah, that and their firstborn were all dying, right? Everyone has somebody dying in their house. Okay, so take the gold rings, you know, all of this gold and, and bring them to me. All right, so notice Aharon doesn't try to talk them out of this. Aharon doesn't say anything. He doesn't say why that's not going to help. What are you asking me for exactly? What are your intentions exactly? Aharon says nothing. He just says, bring me the gold. And that's all he says, bring me the gold. And all the people took off the gold rings that were in their ears and brought them to Aharon. The Midrash, Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, says Ha'am here is masculine and it means the men. According to the Midrash, the women did not bring their gold to Aharon. So we might want to ask, why does the tradition want to preserve that as the version? But we don't have time. Okay. And he takes it from their hands, this gold, and he cast it in a mold and made it into, it says here, molten. That is not a great translation. And it misleads us a bit, I believe, in how we interpret this story often. So Aharon takes the gold, he casts it in a mold. It is not an, it's not a molten calf. It's an egel masecha. It is an egel, a calf, that is masecha, covered, probably in gold plating. So the gold is hammered thin, and most likely this is a, uh, which was the way they did things in the ancient Near East and in Egypt here, is it would be a wooden calf, masecha, that is covered in gold filigree or gold plating. And they exclaimed, vayomru. So what do they say is when he brings out the egel masecha? What do they say? Ela elohecha Yisrael. This is your God, Israel. Asher he'elucha me'eretz Mitzrayim, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, let's pause. This is the same word, Elohecha, Yal's Elohim. That's what they asked for, was Elohim. This does not necessarily mean God, capital G. Actually, the interpretation goes against that. This is Yal's gods that brought y'all up from the land of Egypt. It's exactly what they asked for. So we can't now just translate it as God, capital G, unless you're ready to translate it that way from the other verse. Okay. And, and, and I'm saying that's, that's a possible translation. It means different things, how we translate this word. The entire thing hinges on how we interpret this word. So this is your leader who brought you up from the land of Egypt. These are your gods. This is God who brought you. So we, it really depends how we translate this. And when Aaron sees this, he built an altar before it. And what does Aharon say? Aharon's very clear. Vayomer, chag l'yudhe vavhe machar. 
We are going to have a Chag, a festival. <laughs> to whom? To Yudhei Bavhei. To Yahweh tomorrow. Aharon is very clear who it is that's being worshipped with this altar. It is God. The one God. The God that brought them out of Egypt. Like the, Aharon's very clear and says it out loud. We're making a Chag to Yudhei Vavhei. So the next day, the people offered up burnt offerings. They brought sacrifices of well-being, the Shlamim offering. They sat down to eat and drink. And vayakumu litzachek, and they got up litzachek. What's litzachek, people? Litzachek. It doesn't mean dance. Play. To play. play. Exactly right. They got up to play. Ooh, and wow. we've seen litzacheking before, haven't we? In Genesis? Aren't there sexual overtones to it? There are definitely sexual overtones to it. Absolutely. <laughs> this is how it is clear to the king that Rebecca and Isaac are not just husband and wife because Isaac and Rebecca are litzacheking on the roof. If they were dancing, I don't think it would have the same implication, right? It definitely has sexual overtones. So most likely there are some kinds of um, rites that are happening, rites that are happening um, that involve some kind of um, sexual activity of some kind and in some places the bull particularly in egypt is also a symbol of fertility right so it would make sense that that if you have a bull as the representation of whatever it is you're celebrating that that um those kinds of activities might have a role to play in the worship okay so that's what's happening meanwhile back at the camp now let's go back to sinai God says to Moshe, lech, raid, go, get down. So we just had kum. We had the people come to Aharon and say, kum, get up, make us a calf. God says, go, get down. Get down. Why? Because, uh, and how we interpret shichet, you know, whatever it is, is not good. Right. Um, Your people that you brought up from the land of Egypt, says God to Moshe, are screwing up. All right. So how many times have we seen this phrase? We've seen it all over the place in this story that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Who brought the people up from the land of Egypt? Do the Israelites think it was Moses? Do the Israelites think it was God? Do the Israelites think, oh, wait, maybe it's the the cow god that we know from Egypt, which also was represented by Pharaoh? Who brought them up? What does God say? God says to Moses, the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, even God attributes bringing the people up from the land of Egypt, attributes it to Moses. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I enjoined upon them. They have made themselves an Egel Masecha, and bowed low to it and sacrificed to it, saying, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What is God mad about? That's the big question. What is God mad about here? It does not say they are worshiping another God. That is not what it says in the text. It could read that God is angry that the people are crediting 
the Egel, the calf, with bringing them out of Egypt and not Moses. God just said, the people you brought up from the land of Egypt. It could be that God is angry on Moshe's behalf, that the people have replaced Moshe. Remember, they said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy, so build us an Egel. They don't say God has abandoned us. They don't say that. They say we don't know what's happened to Moses. It could very well be that they want a substitute for Moses because he's gone and they're panicking. And God even says, you brought these people out of the land of Egypt. They've been quick to turn away from the path that I've enjoined upon them. And they are worshiping something else as having brought them out of the land of Egypt. Okay. And Yudhe continues and says to Moshe, I have seen, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff naked one. This is God's complaint. Not idol worship. Let us be clear. God's complaint is that they've been quick to turn from the path. And they are a stiff-necked people. I'm going to read to you from Yael Shai and what she has to say about this, because I think it's really, really wonderful. Um, That's the problem here. This is a stubborn, stiff-necked people. If you are stiff-necked, you can't what? You You can't turn. You can't turn your head to look. You can't see things from a different perspective. When you are stiff necked you are stubbornly facing one direction and cannot turn from that, cannot see anything but that. Ve'ata, and now, let me be. Interesting. What does that mean? <laughs> Is Moshe sitting on God? Like, what do you mean, let me be? What does that mean? How, how can Moshe possibly restrain the divine? God says, let me be. And my nostrils will flare at them. And I will eat them. I will consume them. And I will make of you a great nation, a mighty nation. But we know Moshe. We know our guy, don't we? We know Moshe. You think Moshe is going to go for that? Of course not. Verse 11, Vayichal Moshe et Pnei Adonai Elohav. And so Moshe is imploring God intimately, right? The, the face of God, the face of Yudhei Vafei, and says, Lama Yudhei Vafei Yechere Apecha. Why, why would you get your nostrils all aflare at your people that you brought up from the land of Egypt? Right? Everyone is accused of bringing this people up from the land of Egypt. God said, this people you brought up from the land of Egypt is messing up. And Moshe says, what are you going to get so mad at the people about? The people that you brought up from the land of Egypt? With your big old koyach, your big old power, and your big old strong mighty arm. That would be you. What are you getting so mad at them for? And if that doesn't work, Moshe knows to always take another tack, have another argument ready. So he pulls it out quickly. He doesn't even wait. He gives the one argument, 
This is your people. You brought them up. You did this. You, did you not know what kind of a job this was going to be? That's number one, right? You chose to get pregnant. You chose to have that baby. Did you not know it was going to be a pain in your tuchas? Bobby, did you understand what you were doing? Bringing that Lisa into the world? You could not have understood. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, so what? So that's number one. Moshe immediately follows it up with a second argument, which is, don't let it be said in Egypt that you brought them out of Egypt just laharogotam beharim to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from on the face of the earth. Renounce your anger, shuv, turn from your flaring nostrils, <laughs> right? Um, and and don't do this. Don't do ra'ah. Don't do wicked, terrible, bad, evil things to your people. So the argument is, A, you brought them up. You are responsible for this, number one, God. Number two, God, um, do you want the Egyptians talking trash about you? They're going to say, oh, sure, God did 10 plagues. Oh, sure, God split the sea. Sure, God did that. But that was just so God could destroy them in the mountains. You want them talking that kind of smack about you? I don't think so. So don't do this. And if that doesn't work, let's pull out another one. <laughs> let's pull out a third argument. Moshe's not stupid. Moshe's dealing with God here, right? Zechor la'avraham li'itzchak u'li'israel avdecha. Asher nishbata lahem. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who you swore to. You swore. I will make your descendants as the stars of the heavens. You said that. You promised. So, A, you did this. B, you don't want the Egyptians talking smack. And C, uh, hello, you made some promises. Are you, a, are you a God of your word or not? You swore to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov that you would make their descendants numerous as they have not then wiped them out. No, you can't do that. And God, God was comforted. God's like, okay. So God decides not to do the that God said God was going to do to God's people. Now for the rabbis, can you really imagine that they would have a God who could be so swayed by human arguments? God forbid. God forbid. So of course for the rabbis, God set this whole thing up as a way to elicit from Moshe his own defense of the people because God was worried that Moshe was going to turn on the people because they were seriously screwing up and that God does this whole elaborate routine so that Moshe will step up, so that Moshe will step forward and Moshe will defend the people. You can decide whether or not you buy that. And so Moshe turns, you can imagine, he's dealt with God. He's prevented God from destroying the people. What does he got to do now? Right? He just convinced dad not to kill the kid or beat the kid. So now what has to happen? Now Moshe has to go deal with the kid. Moshe turns on, you can imagine, turning on his heel. Don't make me come down there. Don't make me come down there. And if I have to come down there, Vayifen, Moshe spins around, you can imagine, and Vayered Minahar, and he goes down from the 
Har, the mountain, with the two tablets of the pact in his hands, written, right? These are the ones written by God. They were written, Mishne uh, Avraham, on both sides they are written. On this side and this side they were written. Usually you see that represented as two sides, meaning the right and the left. For the rabbis, because it was written by the finger of God, it was a miracle that God's finger actually carved through the stone all the way through, but it read the same way from both sides. That it was written, you could read it from both sides of the stone, but the miracle, because it was written by God's finger, was that it wasn't backwards when you read it on the other side. All right, you can decide what you think about that. We are very clear here that these, these tablets are the work of Elohim. Again, we're getting Elohim, right? So um, they're, they're written by God, by Yishma Yeshua. Now, Yeshua, Joshua had gone up with Moshe. He could go a certain amount of the way, not the whole way. So Yeshua has been on the mountain. And when he heard the sound of the people in its, what does it say, boisterousness, um, Kol ha'am. He hears the voice, the sound of the people. And he says to Moshe, Kol milchama b'machane. There is the sound of war in the camp. Vayomer. But Moshe said, this is the disjunctive vav, not the conjunctive vav, the disjunctive vav. But he said, meaning Moshe, Ein kol anot gvura, ve'en kol anot chalusha. <laughs> Moshe says, uh-uh, this is not the sound. It's not the voice of gvura, triumph, nor is it the kol anot chalusha, nor is it the sound of the noise of uh, being defeated. It is the sound, very interesting, of song? No. Barry, how would you translate anot here? Um, uh, torture, uh, like uh, suffering. Thank you. Inuim. Thank you. This is not, I don't know why it's translated here. Song, I'm sure the scholars had their reasons. That is not what Moshe is saying. Moshe says this is not the sound of victory in war. This is not the sound of defeat in war. This is a whole nother business. This is a whole nother something, something that's happening down there because Moshe knows what's happening and he's trying to tell Yoshua, no, this is not about war. And in some ways it's worse. And so when Moshe comes near the camp and sees Ha'egel, the calf, umachalot, and the dancing, Vayichar of Moshe, and Moshe's nostrils flare and he sends from his hands the luchot, the tablets, and he shatters them. This is the, this is Shibel. This is the PL form of Shavar to break. This is the intensified form. He shatters them literally under the mountain. Why? Some people see this as Moshe having a temper tantrum. Oh, I hate when it does that. It, that's not what's happening. 
most likely. He's mad. Don't get me wrong. Like, remember, God's nostrils were flaring. Well, Moshe's nostrils flare. Moshe's angry. Absolutely, he's angry. But that's not why he breaks the tablets. Why does Moshe shatter the tablets written by God? We got this such a big deal about these magic tablets that it's written by God. It's the work of God, blah, 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 blah. And Moshe shatters them. That is not an accident. These are very special. They're a gift. They were created by God as a gift to Israel. And, and Moshe breaks them. Why? Because Moshe is making it very clear to the people what they have done. They have broken the agreement. They have broken already what God was giving them. This covenant, they have already broken it. So Moshe tears up the contract. We signed a deal and you already, right, have broken it. All right. Um, so then Moshe says to Aaron, so Moshe burns the Egel, grinds it into powder, and then made the Israelites drink it. What does this remind us a little bit of in Torah? You want quail? You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat till it's coming out of your nostrils. I'll give you meat. You want meat? <laughs> right? So you want an Egel? You want to be intimately involved with the Egel? No problem. Here, I'm going to smash it up in this glass and you're going to drink it. You want to be intimate and close with the Egel? No problem. Watch this. So they drink it. And Moshe says to Aaron, uh, what, what, what did they do to you? This people that you could bring upon them this kind of sin. What did they do to you? You look just fine to me. So Aaron begs Moshe, don't let your nostrils flare against me, right? Nostrils are flaring all over the place in this Parsha. And it's dangerous when that happens. It's really dangerous when it, God does it. But it's just as dangerous if, you know, the leader loses his cool. Who knows what's going to happen? So Aharon begs Moshe not to lose his cool with him, right? Um, you know, you know this people, yada, intimate knowing, intimate, close, up close knowledge. You know this people, you know how wicked they are. You know how horrible your child can be. You know, what was I supposed to do? They said, Make us an Elohim. We have to figure out how to translate that word, right? It's going to go before us. Because this guy, Moshe, the one that brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Okay, that seems to be pretty accurate so far. So I told them, give me your gold. And they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire. And this cow came out. Okay, really? Okay, really? Right? Mom, I don't know. He made me do it. He made me. And I like just reached towards the bowl and it like just, it fell and it became this, this pile of glass shards. <laughs> I, 
never touched it. I don't know what I don't know how that happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Moshe, interesting. Moshe doesn't punish Aaron, and neither does God. Aharon never gets punished for this. All right. Very interesting. Now look, he might have gotten punished by being high priest. <laughs> that could be Aaron's punishment, right? That he is high priest. But but at least for this particular incident, the worst in Israel's history, it gets remembered over and over, doesn't happen. Moshe says, all y'all, Moshe gets the Levites, his tribe, and says, all y'all who are for Yudhe come here. And we know what happens to the rest of them, right? 3,000 are put to the sword. 3,000. Okay. So who wants to say something? I know somebody's got to want to say something. How can you not after that? All right, Judith. How do you account for the mistranslations that are so in opposition to what the Hebrew says? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think often, you know, when translators are working in translation, they, you know, there's two theories. One is that you stay really close to the like kind of literal meaning and then let the reader interpret what that means. Like Barry saying, Ochlam means literally, I shall end them. Not really. And Barry's the native speaker, by the way, that I'm challenging on this. He says it means I'll end them. No, it doesn't. It means I'll eat them. It means I will consume them. Barry's going to say, but what that idiomatic expression means is I will end them. So, so the translator has to decide, do you translate it, I will consume them or I will end them? Do you know what I'm saying? So do you say I'm going to go window shopping or do you translate window shopping as we're going to look around, right? Because window shopping, are you shopping for windows? Like if you don't know that idiomatic expression, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better to just say, we're going to go look around. Do, do you see what I'm saying? So, so part of it is how close do you stay to the actual literal translation and, and how much do you translate where you're trying to give people the sense of what the Hebrew expression means. So that's how, in my opinion, my humble opinion, that's how a lot of it happens. But I think if you don't know that the word to end them comes from to eat them, you miss, you miss something about what God is saying. I made this people, I brought them out, I brought them up and I can consume them, right? I can eat them. I brought you into this world and I can take you out, (laughs) right? So, um, and it's a vivid Expression is a very vivid Hebrew expression that I just like to remind us what it is so that we can make our decisions about how we then translate that. All right, um, Barry. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we have uh, two roots, achal uh, which means to eat, and chavav uh, which means to end something. So uh, these are different roots, and uh, to eat will be ochlam with a with a um, small kamas. So, uh, um, but rabbis do that all the no, they, the sages do that all the time, and they uh, um, mix and uh, you know match these uh, roots um, to bring better trend, um, interpretations. Uh-huh. So, uh, but the Hebrew is very clear about ending rather than eating. Well, but. Uh, the- but I'm not sure they're not related, number one. Number two, it's the Masoretes who decide if it's a Kamatz. The, Maser- the Masoretes decide that. Yeah, that's also an interpretation, right. Yeah. 
And uh, translators also work with Midrashim a lot. Uh, we have yeah. Rashid who does that uh, a lot, and we have modern translators do that as well. And in here, we have Midrashim that are uh, supporting what Moses did, and there are uh, a minority of Midrashim that um, criticize Moses for breaking the tablets. So it's up to the translator to, to bring in his own or she's, uh, her own uh, interpretation. Um, by translation is interpretation. Yes, yes, and yes. Thank you. So, do translations do translations evolve too? I mean, are they constantly sure. evolving? Sure. So, first of all, the translator can't be separated from their interpretation of the text, right? It's very hard to separate a translator from what their interpretation is. So, sure. And so, and what Barry's saying is, then you have lots of translators who are all influenced by the tradition. And how the tradition has understood it, right? But you know how much I love to challenge that and say, really? <laughs> right? There's lots of other interpretations, right, of that. All right, Maxime. Yes, good morning. Um, good morning. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, as, a, as a matter of interpretation, when uh, Moshe is on Mount Sinai and he's speaking with God, um, how much, to what extent is he having a conversation like with some other divine entity versus or, or could that also be interpreted as some sort of like internal reckoning that Moses is having with himself as, as a leader? Um, and could, could that internal reckoning be divine? Beautiful. Um, so why not? <laughs> that, that's my answer. Why not? Like there's lots of ways to interpret these texts. When we see Jacob wrestling with the angel Many, 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 many commentators want to understand that as Yaakov wrestling with a part of himself, um, maybe even, you know, with, with a godlike part of himself, a part that's connected to divinity, but he has to, he has to engage that in a pretty intimate, straight on way in order to become Yisrael. So, of course, we could interpret this, that Moshe is actually dealing with the darker side, maybe, of his own leadership, his own desire to kill the people, his own desire to start over. Absolutely, we can take it and run with, if we interpret it that way, there's lots we could take from this Parsha, right? About what's going on here. So yes, absolutely, why not? 100%. So you have me confused now. I had this simple, I saw the movie and it was very simple, okay? There was a golden calf, the people bound down and they worshiped it. And ultimately, and they got punished. And it was against idolatry. And the idea is don't worship golden calves, only worship Yudhe That was very simple. Maybe that's the, the elementary school version of this. So are you presenting an alternative or are you just blowing up all interpretation and saying there's like a hundred different ways to understand this? Yes and yes. Yes, I'm challenging that simple interpretation because I don't think that's what's happening here. I think the message here is much more sophisticated. B, yes, I always want to blow up how we, how we relate to these texts so straightforward and we're so sure because we saw the Charlton Heston version. Like, so we're all, we're all so sure we understand them and I don't ever want us to take them at our pediatric understanding because usually that's not... It's not sophisticated enough, an interpretation of what's happening. Sometimes it is. 
right? And we just go, okay, so that was written a really long time ago. We don't relate to, you know, to God the same way, whatever. That's not this. Think for a second about what they're going to be told to create. What are they going to be told? What is the next couple of books talking about the whole time? Building what? The instructions to build what? A society, a godly society. But what are they supposed to, what's their construction project? Pam, Jody, right? You're saying, I hope you're saying the Mishkan. The Mishkan, right. Right? Jody's like, yes. All right. So they're going to be given a set of instructions that we're going to hear ad nauseum down to the detail of how to build the Mishkan. Then we're going to get, and they took the silver and they made it into hooks and they made it into planks and they hit the planks together. So now we're going to get the, the instructions and then we're going to get how they followed the instructions ad nauseum. The Mishkan is the focus, what they're supposed to build as the center of their spiritual attention is the Mishkan. What does the Mishkan delineate according to Aviva Zornberg? It delineates space. Yes? You have the planks of the outer blah, blah, blah. It delineates a space. Within that, you have the tent. And and the tent is divided, as we know. And at the very holiest, holiest of holy space, what is that space? That is the Kodesh Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies. What's in the most sacred space? What's in there? Nothing. <laughs> the Aron is in there. Right. Right. The Ark is in there. What is the Ark made out of? Acacia wood. What is put inside the Ark? Do we remember? Not, not, not yet. Just, just the Ark itself. What's on the inside of the Ark? Gold plating, gold lining. What's in the ark when it's built? Nothing. It is empty space delineated by gold plating. What is going to go in there? Teaching about how to live. So Brian keeps answering all my questions as I ask them. That's great. So what's going to go in there? Words. Teaching, values, wisdom, morals, ethics, ways to behave and ways not to behave. That's what the holy focus is supposed to be. Not wood filled with itself and covered in gold. Junk filled with itself. That's the sin. One interpretation of the sin. I've got a bunch. But one They're worshiping stuff filled with itself. That's the problem today, America 2021. I'm going to get a new handbag. What is that famous handbag that they wrote the whole book about? A Birkin or whatever it's called, right? Birkin. So $20,000, right? And you have to stand in line. And only if your husband works for this company and get especially can you get the new one, blah, 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 right? That's what we worship. That's what we turn to to say, this is what is powerful. This is what brought us up from Egypt. This is the power. Here's where it is. It's in this new car that costs a a kabillion dollars. The new house, the new vacation. Junk filled with itself has claimed our attention. We give it power and we call it mighty. And if I have it, I am mighty. I am powerful. And this is what we crave. Power. Why? Because we're afraid. 
The people are afraid. That's when they build an Egel, when they're alone and afraid that they've been abandoned. That's when they turn to stuff, because that's what we do. If I get a bigger house, then I won't be alone and I won't be scared. If I get a big enough title, if I get a big enough car, if I have a private plane, I'll never be alone. Everyone will want to come with me to my island. <laughs> right? like, so this is what we do. This is descriptive, actually, of what happens to us. We panic and we turn to stuff, substances, sex, sleep, television, fill in the blank. We panic and we turn to what we know. We turn to what's familiar. We turn to a God of Egypt, not believing that it's a God, believing that it's familiar. The festival is to yud heh vav but they're demanding that yud heh vav show up in their lives the way they say it has to be. yud heh vav we don't know this invisible, moral, ethical, blah, 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 blah. We know cows and gold, like we know that. So that's how yud well, that's how yud heh looks. They grew up in Egypt. That's how supermodels look, people, right? We know how supermodels look, and that's what we're supposed to look like, right? Because that's what we know. That's what we're told is the image of womanhood. That's the image. Skinny, rich, thin, fill in the blank with lots of thick hair, of course. So, and very white, very, very white. So this is what they know, and they're demanding that God look like what they know. And that's what we do. We want God to show up the way we want God to show up or else it's not God. It better look how we want it to look and what we're used to or else can't be God. This is descriptive, not proscriptive. Proscriptive's coming. Build a Mishkan. (laughs) This to me is descriptive. This is what we do. God better show up the way I expect it. Rita. I was just going to point out that the tabernacle is built in the reverse way of the calf being built. The calf started with wood and the outside was gold. And here the wood starts off and the inside is gold. So let's reverse everything from the way you guys are thinking. Let's reverse everything about the way you people are thinking, about the way you people react, about the way you people behave when you're afraid. Yes, Rita. And that is what God learns. Some of us would have the chutzpah to say, that's what God learns is they need a mishkan, right? They, they have to be given something to build. That's just who we are. And they got to be given a focus. That's just who we are. It can be an egel or it can be the mishkan. It can be empty space with gold at the center of empty space like you said, completely the opposite, filled with words and ideas and ideals, not filled with itself. We got it all wrong. But if you read this in a loving way, I got a clap from Barry, love that. If you read this in a loving way, God gets an aha moment here. God loves us and wants us to focus on the right things 
Because God wants to be in relationship. Why are they to build a Mishkan? Do you remember? Why do we build a Mishkan? Because I want to be in them. I want to be with them. I want to live with them. I want us to move in together. I love you that much that I'm willing to live with you. Who are you willing to live with? Right? Who's willing to live with me? Well, that's another, that's it's Judy's problem. But like, who's willing to do that? That's an, it's a huge commitment. And that's why the Mishkan. So the Mishkan is, is a corrective, sure. But it's a corrective of love. You're focused on the wrong thing. I want you to focus intimately with me on us being together, not on what I look like. Sarah Moskowitz. In that process of joining for the temple, you are building a community. You are drawing us together. And without that, it's hard to be anybody because it's the community that supports each other, that helps each other, that creates things. If their attention is focused the right way, right? Because that same community can build something icky, right? Can Vayika hell, they come together. So that can either be a really good thing that they're coming together to build something fantastic and amazing and holy, or Vayika hell, you know, they gang up against Aaron. Just the gathering doesn't do it. Just being a community that doesn't do it. But you're 100% right. When the community's focused and supports each other and are looking at the right stuff and trying to be about the right thing, yes. It's something we cannot do without each other. Absolutely, 100%. All right. So I want to um, look a little bit at Yael Shai because she's just, I lo- just love her, her stuff on this. So, so she talks about fire. She talks about what's going on when Aaron says he threw him into the fire and out came, the, out popped this calf. Right. So she she talks about the same thing is going to happen with the Mishkan. Gold is going to get melted down. It's the same thing. So she says the fire of anxiety. When Aharon throws the gold in the fiber fire, the people are filled with terror and anxiety. Moses has been gone for over a month. They are terrified of being abandoned, of being alone. Aviva Zornberg calls their generosity with their gold, not openness of heart, but a nervous tick. They are in effect saying, I'll give you everything I have if you make this terrible feeling of loneliness go away. But is it any wonder that out of the fire popped a golden calf, right? Something that was understood, easily grasped by the people. At that time, they worshipped calves. It was easy. It was familiar. It was comforting, right? Like we talked about. It drops the gold, out pops the calves. To the Israelites, it was almost easier to create the calf than it was not to. Most of us have had similar experiences to this times when the heat and discomfort of fear is so intense. It's almost intolerable. Right. And she talks about the intensity of anxiety, not knowing what the future holds, feeling afraid. Right. And so what do we want? We want a quick fix like television or substances like we like we spoke about. And what happens? 
Um, we start telling ourselves, we also reach for well-worn storylines about whatever it is we're anxious about in a desperate attempt to gain control. Things like, this will never work out. Don't get your hopes up. I know this new thing I'm trying will fail. I'm this kind of person, so that it'll turn out this way. I love this that she points out, we reach for old storylines and tropes as quickly as we do for substances, right? I should have known things never work out for me. I should have known people always leave. This is what we grab for. Underneath the fear, of course, is vulnerability. We have so little control or knowledge of how things will turn out, and admitting that is very hard. The Israelites didn't know Moshe would return to them. It's easy to judge them. However, if you've ever been in a shaky beginning of a new relationship or had to wait to hear the results of medical tests or a job interview, then you know the feeling, right? You'd rather do anything than sit with those feelings for more than three seconds. The trouble is those solutions don't work, right? At best, they get us through the night just to face the anxiety in the morning. At worst, they can cause us, like the Israelites, to sabotage ourselves, our work, our relationships, and cause a lot of pain. But in the terror of not knowing, Yael Shai points out, is something else, a great desire. The people's hearts are on fire with desire for connection and to not be alone. They are aflame with the desire to feel loved and cared for. Don't we all? Aren't we all desirous of feeling loved and cared for? The flip side of all anxiety is actually desire. We're afraid of not getting something we want because we want it so badly. It is a directly proportional relationship. I love this. She doesn't stop at fear and anxiety. She, like Zornberg, says fear and anxiety of not getting what we want is directly proportionate to how much we want it, to our desire. The Israelites will get next week and the next couple of parts, another chance to get it right, right? He goes to them with the instructions, Moshe, for the Mishkan. Another fire is created. And Moshe asks the people to reach into their heart and bring forth their gold and offerings, and they do. That same fire is in their hearts. But now we have a much more careful process for facilitating intimacy, because that's what they want. Intimacy with the divine. And that's what God wants. I want to be with them. And this new process is painstakingly perfect, right? We're going to get all these details. He is passionate, yes, when working with fire, but it is a passion born of love and patience, not fear. He can stay in that heat much longer without hasty action. So how do we practice this type of action in our lives? How do we use our fires to create careful and holy work when our bodies are going crazy with pandemic anxiety, political anxiety, racial anxiety, all the things we've seen happen, fear and terror? We're temp- when we're tempted to grab the closest stale storyline or familiar solution to get rid of the feeling. Well, the text, she says, gives us the answer. Shabbat. The next thing that's going to happen is the commandment for Shabbat. Stillness. Kindling fires on Shabbos? Prohibited. Right? You stop doing and you start being. God seems to tell us that before we act, we must learn to sit in the middle of our lives, even if they're filled with the heat of anxiety or desire. It doesn't matter which one. We sit there and practice our muscle of not grabbing the easy way out. We sit 
and breathe and notice what happens when we don't fill the space. And she quotes Zornberg here, for reverie to be possible, time has to be made for time. That stillness, that breath is the ground zero for imagination and for the creation of new solutions and sanctuaries. Boom. Mic drop, people. Shabbat. That's the answer. Whether we're filled with desire or anxiety caused by what we want and the fear of not getting it, both are the same. It's energy. It's feelings. It's thoughts. Okay, that's fine. And that's where we live most of the time. But the practice that will enable us to shift that is Shabbat. Whatever that means for you, you know I don't mean the classic Kiddush and Motzi. You know that's not what I mean. It's the practice of sitting with what we're feeling. It's the practice of stopping all the manipulating, all the gathering, all the tinkering, all the whatever, and just learning that we have the strength and the courage to face our feelings and see them for what they are, feelings. We can be with our thoughts and face them for what they are, thoughts. They're not reality, capital R. We can only start shifting how our thoughts and feelings are going. We can only do that when we sit with what is real, capital R, the shachanti betocham, when we dwell in the presence of the mystery at the heart of reality, the ground of all being, the source of all love and all life. When we can be with that, we can hold our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, old tropes. We can hold it all with grace. We can forgive ourselves, and more importantly, we can heal. Then we can turn our attention the other six days to addressing all of that, to addressing our feelings, to addressing our thoughts. Um, so I, I want to leave us with what, what I hope is a little bit deeper of a teaching than just don't worship that. Yes, that's part of it for sure, but that's not what's the richer meaning here is build a mishkan. And move in because the divine wants to move in with you and be in you. Make yourself a mishkan. A mishkan me'at, say the rabbis. Make yourself a sanctuary because the divine wants to live in you. But we have to clear out space. We have to get rid of the junk, both physically and in other ways. We have to get rid of the junk. And when we can do that, when we can clear out some space, John is going to sit with you at 1130. When we can clear out some space and settle the hell down, we can open up room to really understand how the divine is showing up in our lives and, and what is an appropriate uh, response to that. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.